Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show on the choose yourself network today on the james altucher show if we're grown-ups we need to be able to talk about these things we have to care about what is actually true. We owe it to ourselves to care about our own contradictions, and we owe it to others, those with whom we're arguing, to continue to point out their internal contradictions. I mean, this is, this is actually the most compelling sort of criticism of another person's view. It's one thing to say, I mean, if we're arguing about, you know, religion or, or climate change or whatever it is, if I'm pointing to facts over there that you don't acknowledge, right? It's a very weak argument. I, I can't make a lot of headway with you. But if I can show you the way in which your own assumptions are in conflict with themselves, right? That you actually can't functionally believe what you say you believe, you know, everything at the same time, right? I mean, you could believe some one thing on Monday and another thing on Tuesday, but if you try to get the Monday truths and the Tuesday truths to cohere, you're actually in contradiction with yourself. That's a much more powerful rebuttal to you. And we, we have to... Well, that's where people have the bias, though. They just won't admit it. So there's ways, I think, when you kind of isolate these cognitive biases and how it affects you, there's ways to overcome them a little bit. Right. So yeah. what I'm curious is, do you think, you know, A, it's clear we have all these cognitive biases. B, most people will probably deny it in most cases. But C, do you think there's ways to overcome a lot of these biases? How can they be healthy for us going forward? How can we use knowledge of these biases going forward to improve our lives?
So I am so happy to be here with Sam Harris. I've been a fan for a long time. He, he was on the podcast five years ago after his book Waking Up came out, but he's written books like The End of Faith, The Moral Landscape, Lying, Free Will, Waking Up. We're going to talk probably a little bit about all of them. And most recently, his, uh, his app, uh, Waking Up, we'll be talking about that. And his podcast, which used to be called Waking Up, what's the, what's the name of it now? Making Sense. Making yeah, Sense. Why did you brand, change the name? There was some brand confusion there around. So I, so I wrote this book, Waking Up. And then I, I honestly cannot remember why I titled my podcast Waking Up. But like I, I was just a, a man who ran out of titles, apparently. So I just poached it from the book. But the book was fairly narrowly focused on meditation and the nature of consciousness and how we can understand spiritual experience in a scientific context, uh, which is maybe, you know, 5% of the subject matter that I deal with in my podcast. So it was always the wrong name for the podcast. It turns out it is the right name for the meditation app that I wanted to release, but I, I just, I couldn't have them titled the same way. It was just too confusing. So I, I rebranded the podcast as making sense, which is actually, actually makes more sense for what the topics I touch. And, and, uh, there's so many different things that I want to talk about with you, uh, you know, ranging from the topics in your books uh, to all sorts of ways the world could end, which I feel like is not necessarily a theme of yours, but comes mm -hmm. up quite a bit yeah. in from your TED Talks to your... What did you do last night? Uh, so, so last night I did a, a, a live podcast, a live event with uh, Danny Kahneman at The Beacon, which uh, was fun. I had never done an event with Danny before, and... Uh, as many viewers, listeners may know, he wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's one of the the fathers of behavioral economics, prospect theory before that. He's a, uh, arguably the most influential psychologist alive at the moment. And he, and he, he basically kind of named and did the research finding all these, you know, what we call cognitive biases, all these yeah. things that influence our behaviors without us realizing it. Yeah, along with his colleague Amos Tversky, you know, who died um, maybe actually I forgot when he died, but at least around ten years ago or so. Um, and so the two of them, I mean, Tversky certainly deserved the Nobel. You know, had he lived, the Nobel's not given to to posthumously. So, uh, but Danny uh, won the Nobel for for in economics for the work he and and Amos did. So, so you know, one one thing that always comes. So you were talking to. Daniel Kahneman last night. One of the things that I always think about with his working with cognitive biases is that, and I'm sure you probably touched upon this in your talk with him, is that for better or for worse, we think we have free will. We think we make our decisions. We think that these decisions are informed by rational behavior. Uh, that you know, because we all think we're 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 smart enough to make our own decisions, and yet what they show with these cognitive biases is that there are so many other factors that are kind of primal that influence our decisions and, and the behaviors we make. Like, w what percentage of our behavior would you say is based on actual rational thinking as opposed to kind of external influences and cognitive biases and so on? Did this come well, up in the conversation? Yeah, well, we did not framed in that way. And I don't know if anyone could, could give you a clear answer to that question. I mean, it's certainly most of what we do and think and feel is not the result of a what you what you would call a a, a rational top down executive uh, appraisal of what's going on. I mean, all this stuff is is being pushed into consciousness from below, and much of our reasoning 
is a kind of post hoc uh, rebranding of the the origins of all of this. So you you have a reaction to somebody, right? That is based on something that you didn't author and and really can't control, right? You you have a you, you have a good feeling or a bad feeling about them, uh, and then if someone asks you, well, how how did you feel about that person? You very quickly generate a story which seems to which advertises it itself as the reasons why you feel this way, and it sounds good. And so you and you you reason in a kind of post hoc way uh, and give yourself an explanatory story for why you feel the way you feel. And we know from you know a vast number of psychological experiments that the story you tell yourself is is very often it very often bears no relationship to the reason why you came to feel the way you felt uh, and even if it is accurate the the conscious story level is not actually the reason right i mean you can you can retrospectively give some plausible account of how you came to judge something a certain way but the story is uh, again largely just the way you're doing some internal record keeping. I mean, this is this is this, this is this narrative of your life that you're telling telling yourself, and it is the the thing you can then export to the minds of others, right? You can give people reasons, and we trade in these reasons all the time. And when they're when they're plausible, the, these these conversations work well. When they when they're not, you begin to feel that you're in the presence of someone who's either not being honest or is self deceived, or you know your their utterances aren't tracking what can seem plausible, but much of our reasoning with one another is not, is a kind of advocacy, both internally and externally, to justify what we, where we arrived by some other process. I mean, it seems like, like a, a great, it's, it, I don't really like it when all of these, all of these theories come out of just scientific research, because then it feels a little too abstract. Like, yes, right. I'm sure there's scientific studies that show uh, people do this because of this or whatever. But one thing I see a lot in entrepreneurship is usually the entrepreneur that, who starts a company believes a lot more in his company or her company than everybody else. So I, so right. this is like an investment bias or sunken cost bias. They've invested time and energy, so they're not willing to admit that maybe their idea, their entrepreneurial idea is not the next Google or Tesla or whatever. Right. And it's almost like everybody's afraid to tell them, ah, your idea is not so good, but they're, they're convinced this is the best idea on the planet ever. And so you see, you see biases like that all the time where people are justifying, you know, behavior just because they've put time into it. So yeah. it must be good. Yeah. Or, or like college is a great example. If somebody spends four years in college and you tell them, ah, you know, college wasn't really such a great thing. Um, they're going to be like, no, it's the best thing you could possibly do with your life because it's such a huge investment in time and money. And you see examples like that all the yeah, time. Yeah, and it's hard to get to some metric there where you, you can know whether you're right or wrong conclusively. But And, and there's also a self-fulfilling aspect to this. So confidence works up to a point, right? I mean, you, it can actually increase the, the odds that you'll succeed even if it's in part you know, drawing some of its energy from self-deception or delusion. So it's not that I mean that you you can you can easily tell a story of, of why uh, uh, an optimism bias or a kind of a my side bias 
is a good strategy. You know, you know more often than not, and that when we would have been selected to to have it, and and it's you know, uh, I, I think this research has, has stood the test of time. Uh, when you ask people to give a self appraisal uh, of how they they're affecting other people, so you bring someone into a room of you know twenty strangers and you have them give a five minute presentation, or you just have him, her, or her introduce themselves around. And then you ask them, you know, what sort of impression did you make on all these people? Uh, it depressed people are the most accurate, right? That a normal, you know, psychologically healthy and happy person uh, is uh, reliably self-deceived with respect to, in the positive direction. They they think they made a better impression than they, than they did. Now you can see this either way. Either that's adaptive. Either you know, it's it's you know, our our, our self-esteem and our good mood. And our well-being is to some degree propped up by self-deception that is necessary, or you know, there's you know, there's other ways to interpret it. I mean, depressed people could be, uh, it could be self-fulfilling. I mean, it's like they're they're actually they know that their you know, their, their depression is sort of guaranteeing a an effect on others that is is easier for them to to gauge. Well, it's, know, so. it's probably both. Like, I mean, we're 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 doing this podcast, for instance, in a in a comedy club. So comedians, they often the way they learn is by going on stage and then looking at the video of themselves on stage yep. so they could see objectively because of because of because of this very effect they think they did well but then when right. they look at the video afterwards they're like oh that was horrible and then they can actually see objectively how they did or at least yeah, a little bit more objectively they can have a another perspective however still subjective on their performance i mean it's like the, the one thing it's interesting how we've all changed on this front because I remember the day where just hearing your voice on an answering machine gave gave the this kind of uncanny feeling of wait a minute that doesn't sound like my voice right now now we're so used to seeing ourselves and hearing ourselves that I don't think anyone ever has that experience ever I mean or, or they're four years old when they first have it but yeah it gives you a, a sense of how others see you or may see you from the outside I mean it's not it's not truly objective but it's it's something you can't see from you know just being in your own head. But then that's also why a lot of people in, in many fields, and this is part of kind of Anders Ericsson's deliberate deliberate practice, where you do ten thousand hours of deliberate practice to achieve kind of mm -hmm. your your potential in any field. It's not only you take the video, but you have a mentor or a teacher who then also objectively analyzes it for you because you're not because you are biased to think you did better yeah. than you did. So there's ways I think when they when when you kind of isolate these cognitive biases and how it affects you, there's ways to overcome them a little bit. So it takes ten thousand hours instead of one hour. Right. So yeah. so you know, uh, what I'm curious is if do you think, you know, a it's clear we have all these cognitive biases. B most people will probably deny it in most cases. But C do you think there's ways to overcome a lot of these biases and how can they? How can they be healthy for us going forward? How can we use knowledge of these biases to go going forward to to improve our lives? Well, it was interesting to talk to Danny last night because, as you say, Danny is the the father of much of this literature, and he's very pe pessimistic with respect to how much you can improve just your your rationality or your um, your navigation of of what is at bottom the a kind of structure to your 
ignorance and and uh, and and your unconscious mind. And what's happening? What bias is is um, it's something more than than error. It's it's a reliable form of error. The errors are moving in one direction, and uh, so this this part of your mentality uh, and culture. I mean, our collective mentality that we can't see, that we can't always inspect, the, the, the code we can't you know, easily rewrite, has a structure which is producing reliable errors, right? So this is, you know, normal error is the sort of thing that can wash out collectively. So you know, the, the expectation that a market can't be wrong or that a whole society can't be wrong is only valid when everyone's errors are uncorrelated, right? But here we're talking about correlated error. We're talking about biases that we all share where we're going to be reliably wrong in one direction or another. And I think there are many of these. Um, I think the first, I think Danny would admit that you can become better at anticipating those situations where you're liable to be misled, where your intuitions are liable to be wrong. And, um, you know, from, you know, my experience in meditation, you know, I would say that another piece here is you can be more and more aware of your emotional life and the way and and your attachment to certain things being true i mean so a, a very reliable source of bias is just you're wanting things to be a certain way i mean just wishful thinking is this sort of overarching uh, property of a a mind that's actually in those moments not making valid contact with reality because you're you're, you're con- continually gaming uh, or attempting to game realities to deliver the message that you are going to find consoling i want so, you know I, I don't want to see the evidence of this thing that will disappoint me right so, and, and and it's so important to address that because wishful thinking is often accompanied by disappointment when you don't get what you want if you if you write a book and it doesn't make it and your 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 happiness is linked to it getting to the bestseller list and it doesn't right. get there you're disappointed and so kind of being aware of that bias could improve your life. Yeah, well, and so, I mean, there's there's disappointment, but there's also, um, it's just the more you can be aware of your changes of state moment to moment, the, 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 these these micro disappointments or the, the, the hope and fear that is constantly, you know, percolating beneath the surface, uh, which, which if you're not, really vigilant you won't know you're feeling hope and fear in each moment right it's like like if you're not many of us or most of us certainly live with this with a kind of an ambient level of anxiety and and we're very high level of anxiety. yeah yeah but like like but it's, but you know there are people who know they have a problem with anxiety there are people who would could honestly say no no i'm not an anxious person i'm fine but the, you can be kind of you can become a connoisseur of your own neurosis and your own you know seeking happiness and and meditation really is the tool whereby you would do that uh, you know you just become more observant of of why it is you you do things why did I say that thing which I mean it's just there's some kind of stark examples of this like we all know that uh, name dropping and you know telling telling stories in ways that seem to the whole purpose, the whole very structure and intent of the whole utterance is to shine a favorable light on oneself, right? We know how that plays when other people 
do it, right? Like when you see somebody who's name dropping a lot and they're and they're and they're telling self-aggrandizing stories, it almost never gives a positive sense of who that person is, right? Like you're you're just you, it's it looks bad to you whenever anyone else does it, and yet almost everyone is tempted to do it themselves. Like we can't do that the most basic piece of arithmetic where we see this thing advertised on everyone else and it looks to, like if you had a if you were wearing a sweater that I thought looked terrible on you and then your friend puts it on and it looks terrible on him too and then I go into a store and buy that same sweater right it's like it, it's it's completely delusional and yet there are many uh, cognitive failures like this where we we just don't uh we don't do the math right and the more you can become aware of your actual intentions like the, the thing I'm about to do or that I just did 5 seconds ago you know, while I'm selling it both to myself and to somebody else as an expression of my concern, you know, or my altruism or my, you know, my intellectual honesty or whatever, it, it was actually motivated by my fear of how I was being perceived or my, you know, um, you know, uh, my selfishness. I wanted something that I was, it wasn't acknowledging, it was subtext, it wasn't text in the conversation. I mean, these are humbling insights that you can have more of and you know, the, the goal there is not to just become more depressed and cynical about, you know, what a mediocre person you are, is to actually then be able to navigate a little better through this space so that you become more of the person you want to be. I mean, what, what, I, what I would hope to be as a person is to to shrink the distance between what I what is in fact true of me and what I hope people think is true of me. Like So like that's... And when that distance is is wide, you know, then you're then you're a hypocrite. I mean, then you're living a life of stark hypocrisy. And when the, and if you can narrow it enough, you you know that's the that's the the effort of an examined life that is that is increasing honesty and and self awareness and 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 really an ethical code. Right. So you bring up you bring up a great example in like. I think it was the third hour of your recent podcast with Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. where you talk about anger and, you know, all the time I can say about me, I think about, oh, this person did me wrong. This person did me wrong. And you, you can't help but have these things worrying around in your, right. in your head. And a lot of it might be due to some biases, who knows, but your point is about meditation is that kind of identifying, you know, almost putting uh, arm's length distance, like, okay, I'm angry. This is why I might be angry. It might not be what I originally thought. It might be that there's other things going on in my past or my relationship with this person that could be making me, making me angry. Like really kind of analyzing it from this meditative point of view might help you, at least in that situation, overcome whatever cognitive biases made you angry in the first place. And I'm wondering yeah. why Kahneman doesn't quite see that there is some hope from your perspective, does Kahneman see that there's some hope in practicing overcoming these biases? Uh, not much hope. Yeah, I mean, I put that question to him fairly directly, and and yeah, because so you know, this is his life's work. He spent a lot of time thinking about justice. So he's got sunken cost bias. Yeah, no, but but he no, but his he doesn't think he has improved his intuitions really at all. You know, I, I think again, I think he would admit that he's more vigilant for those situations where he's likely to make errors, but he makes the same errors and he's, uh, uh, he doesn't trust his, he, he has a, it seems that he has an additional piece 
uh, of code that has come online, which is I should be aware that there's a high likelihood of error, you know, in, a, in, a, in every circumstance, but in these particular cir circumstances, most of all, right? So, and most of us don't have that chip installed, right? Most of us are just using our states of confidence and doubt as the, the, the signature of valid cognition, right? So I feel my feeling of certainty is the thing that is reporting back to me validly the closeness of fit between my beliefs and the world, right? So I'm, I've got a map and, we, and, the, and the world is out there and my feeling of, my feeling good while looking at the map is, is, is reporting to me that the map is in fact accurate, right? That's the way most of us are trying to navigate. And the problem is those feelings, the feelings of confidence, the feelings that you're right, the, the, the sense you get that, you know, the thing you just said has the ring of truth, we know that can break apart from valid cognition totally. I mean, you can be completely delusional and, and it feel you feel and you feel just as sure about the validity of your beliefs. Well, well, look at I mean the the giant social experiment of <clears throat> social media. You have half the world believing strongly in one thing, and the other half of the world believing so strongly in the opposite that they hate their their yeah. neighbors who who are on the other side. It's, and everybody feels so strongly about these things. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the algorithms behind the news feed we all look down on, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever is <clears throat> motivated by these cognitive biases. So we'll be more likely to follow someone who has a lot of followers. And that person might be in a group that you then want to belong to. And then you start liking all the posts of the people in that group, whether they're real or not. So those, you know, there's a lot of suggestions that these, this social media is influenced by people or bad actors or, or, or countries that want to influence opinion. And it's, it's all related to these cognitive biases and how they interact with social media. Yeah. And I think we have a responsibility to, uh, be vigilant in ourselves and among our friends for all of the, 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 the moves we make that, that are enshrining this toxicity in our lives, because it's completely destroying our ability to make sense to one another journalistically and to, to cohere politically. And so, I mean, what, you know, one thing that just came to mind uh, as you were describing that is I noticed that people hold their enemies to a different standard than they hold their friends to, right? It's like you, you, like you, you notice errors of reasoning in, in places where you are pretty sure you disagree with the conclusions. I mean, if you don't like the way that the math is adding up on the other side of the aisle politically, you are very scrupulous in, in pointing out anything illogical or, you know, errors of fact or, but on your side, people tend to just, they, they know how they want the math to come out, right? They know what the conclusion should be. And then they're willing to forgive, you know, just glaring errors and omissions on you know in on on route to getting to the to the to the punchline well, and what's and, a specific we, that, example because there's millions of specific examples and i think people can relate to this strongly but yeah well i mean so take uh, i mean it's just a very simple one is uh evidence of racism 
right? What constitutes evidence of racism? And if somebody says something or does something and uh, the disposition to score that as you know, proof positive that that person is racist uh, arises in certain contexts and it doesn't in others. And what we owe it to, what we owe to ourselves and to everyone else uh, is to do, to, to figure out what, how to do this well, right? Because we, we acknowledge that racism is a problem and we want less of it. Uh, but however we do it, we should hold the, the same standard of evidence to stable everywhere. And so you take some of someone like Trump. Now, from what I know about Trump, I have no doubt that he's racist, right? I just, I mean, I have enough both public information and private information to, to, to feel that I'm, you know, I'm not unfairly slandering the guy to them. I think, you know, if racism means anything, this guy is, is racist. Now, whether he's, you know, KKK level racist or just, you know, Archie Bunker level racist, you know, we can, we can debate, but, uh, the guy's a colossal asshole, and this is one of the reasons why he's an asshole. Uh, now, the problem with the left, the problem with the, with the organized opposition to Trump is that people on the left who are rightly worried about racism are so unprincipled in their allegations of racism that half of the, th the things that they find of, as evidence of Trump's racism are not evidence of racism. I mean, they, they will call him a racist a hundred times where it might only be warranted 15 times, right? And that's, it's not only, so you have to be fair to your enemies because pretty soon you're, that, those, that same standard of evidence, the same spurious allegations are gonna be made of your friends. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that 
It's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Do you think this spread between reality and, and truth has gotten wider as a result of A, social media, and B, maybe the polarization of the country, which we could get into in a little bit mm -hmm. as well? Like, like, what do you think are the... The, the seeds that are spreading this because it's it's clearly wider than it seems like it's ever been before i i don't know but it's at it, least it's, in the last tw 20 years it seems wider i i don't know what the ground truth is there i mean but it, i i share that perception it seems wider and i like think you can't say any if you said something in 1985 your career is over now yeah yeah well i think social media is a big piece of it I mean, there's the fact that nothing's disappearing right so there's this kind of we're all trailing this this mountain of digital debris that people can just sort through and and in in many cases maliciously you know re-edit and uh you know that we're, we're moving into a time where i mean maybe that maybe technology will will solve this problem for us because we will move into a period where you know, you'll be able to fake anything in a way that's that's undetectable, right? I'll be able to create a video of of you saying anything, and it'll look it'll be indistinguishable from a video of you saying what you in fact said, and then we'll begin to distrust all of the all of these digital confections, and uh, we'll be left with just you know when when it matters, you'll just have to ask the person, you know, what is it that you actually believe, right? We've got you know four hundred videos of you saying you know, these incompatible things. You know who? Well, who's the real authority on who you are? It might ultimately be you, right? We could be sort of returned to the gold standard of you know we just have to we just have to ping the person again. But in the current environment, people are being held accountable to the least charitable possible interpretation of something they may have said, half said. What you know, it's something that can be seen or you know or misinterpreted in out of context. And everyone is being told they just need to live or die on that by that standard, and no clarification or apology in the case of an, a genuine misstep is acceptable, right? So it's like you know you take um, the Liam Neeson case is a, is a recent one. So I mean Liam Neeson, and I and you know uh, I need to defensively caveat this because I haven't followed every article that has come out about this. So I don't know if he's you know if we have an image of him at, you know that is. You know, um, uh, makes it makes uh, what he what I am about to describe look worse than it, than it in fact is. But uh, 
the story as I have it is Liam Neeson in in the process of doing press for a movie about that had you know vengeance as a theme uh, told a story about his past where he had a friend who got raped by a black man and he for a week afterwards was in this state of kind of murderous you know vendetta rage where he was walking around hoping for a black man to challenge him so that he could murder a black man in any just and any black man would do right so this was a kind of classic blood feud state of mind where uh, this kind of instrumental violence, right? A person of the same type, a person from the same tribe will be a sufficient uh, you know, target of, uh, of aggression. I and mean, this, is, this, is, this is how vengeance is appropriately aimed. Um, and he, was, he told the story as a, you know, an all too honest confession of, can you believe how crazy I was during this week of my life? I mean, you know, thank God nothing bad happened, right? Now that could have been, uh, which you know, you know, it could have been exactly how it seemed to strike me when I first heard about this, as just an amazingly honest confession about just how deranged a human mind could be, even a human mind as respectable and with as much to lose as Liam Neeson's. Right? It's like you know, Liam Neeson is a incredibly talented actor who's had a great career who many, many people love, and he is willing to, to talk about how deranged he was for this week of his life. And this opens up a, a very interesting conversation on, a, on a, a, a massive ethical and political problem. You know, one is just the, the issue of tribal violence and instrumental violence and that we have to outgrow. It's anchored to notions of honor culture uh, of the sort that, that, that Liam grew up in. He, he grew up through the, that, the period in Ireland where there you know, Protestants and Catholics were murdering each other, um, and very much within this spirit. So, you know, they killed a, they killed a bunch of they killed my brothers. So, I don't have to kill the person who killed my brothers. I'm just going to kill their brothers, right? It's like it's it's you know it, it it is a kind of violence that is by by truly modern ethical standards is psychopathic, and yet it's all too tempting given that we're just social primates and, and this is this is the history we come from. Um, so he opened a conversation on this topic, and because there is some construal of what he said that can seem like just stark racism, uh, whereas I, you know, I would argue again, I don't know what else has come out in the news since I last looked at this, but uh, assuming I'm dealing with the, the story as it as it exists, there was no evidence of racism in in what he said, right? What, what he the, the, the fact that we're talking about a black man in this case is completely epiphenomenal. He could have said, listen, listen, my friend was raped by a cop. And so I spent the next week of my life waiting, just looking for a cop to look at me cross-eyed so that I could kill a cop and, and get vengeance, right? That is a logically identical story, right? And if, if that had been the story, no one would be talking about Liam Neeson's racism. And we would have, and that would be the pure case of being able to talk about this sort of derangement, right? Um, uh, or it could have been, you know, this is, you know, there was a uh, the person was Norwegian, right? And he would be looking for a Norwegian. Whatever it is, all the Norwegians in Ireland, everything, yeah, everything would shift. But because we are so trigger happy on this on this variable of race, especially black white, you know, uh, difference. Uh, People, people want to erase this man's career, 
for for the, for having you know uttered these sentences. So that I mean that's the space we're in, and we have to find. Some... And, and that's your point that it's we're, we're judging his statement by the by the worst possible denominator. Wor- like wor- yeah, the worst possible. I mean, it, it, and it's a fairly tortured interpretation given what he said. But I guess the you know the worst possible in, you know mind reading exercise one could conduct there is Liam Neeson just told us that he has a murderous hatred of black men, right? That's that's who he is, right? It, it's just not even a remotely fair interpretation. But that's where I mean, the, what, what's so cynical about this is that the people who are calling for his head, and they're and again, this is not just one story; it's many, many stories like this in in recent months. The people who are calling for the for the the reputational destruction and and erasure of of people like this don't even care if they have their facts straight. It's like they like they just they don't even in many cases they don't. I mean, this meme that you know you have to break a lot of eggs to make an omelet, right? They don't like even if you can when you can point to the case where it's a totally innocent person going down. Right, where like the, the 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 story was just wrong, people are so cavalier about that now. Just well, you know, the the larger social project is so important that there, yeah, there will be a few innocent people who just get ground up so, under the, our wheels. So what do you think? What do you think is happening? Like, what do you think triggered that? Because there's, you know, definitely rather than signing up to be observers of of facts and multiple interpretations. We're signing up to some kind of identity. This is who I am. This is who I hate. And anyone who some intersection of what they say overlaps something I hate, I'm going to hate them. So we've we've kind of like changed the way, or we've made more extreme the way we we judge people, events, and so on. And it seems to be getting more and more extreme where like you and I talking like this, one interpretation could be, oh, sure, two white Guys, yeah. Oh, yeah. talking about race racism, uh, they shouldn't be doing that. You know, which is kind of the whole in, uh, definition of intersectionality, where only the the most deprived voices should speak. Right. So, so that's something that's only just appeared recently. Like, what's what's triggering this? Do you think? Well, it's, it's a few ideas like that one that you that somehow your identity is relevant when talking about basic facts. Right, so I mean, your identity can be your. De- it's obvious your identity is re- relevant when you're talking about your personal life experience. You know, if you're seven feet tall and you've had this experience of you know every time you get in a car or walk into a room, you know you're you're hitting your head on something because the ceilings are too low or the, you know, that just nothing is ergonomic for you, right? Okay, it totally makes sense that you, that you have a privileged position based on your height to tell the world things that I can't tell the world because I haven't had that that experience, right? Uh, but there's a place to stand outside of our personal experience where we can make fair and dispassionate claims about how the world should be, what would be reasonable, what would be desirable, what would be ethical. Uh, and you know, you and I can talk about racial justice and like what would be fair and what would what what political ends to what you know we would want society uh, aimed, and it's completely irrelevant that we are both white, 
right? We, it's, it's just you don't actually need to get a, a black person or, or, or a two black women or I mean, you, don't, you, need to, you don't need to balance this conversation to talk about, well, wouldn't it be great to have a society where skin color was irrelevant for any conceivable political process, right? You know, we, we, we can acknowledge that if, you know, if someone runs a, a study of resumes where you send out resumes to, to Fortune 500 companies and the resumes are identical except for the fact that you change the names uh, according to two variables. One seemed to, seemed to be, you know, Christian white names and, and the other seems to be uh, either black names or Jewish names or... Asian names, or you know, you could run men versus women, and then we look at the results of these, you know, callback interviews or hiring practices, and we see, you know, white guys beat everyone all the time, right? Whether you're white or black or or, or male or female, we can good good people can acknowledge the non-normativity of that, right? Like this is something. Okay, we if this is in fact true, let's shine a light on it and figure out how to correct for it. You. There's no problem in doing that. And conversely, when we don't find that sort of thing happening, right, let's be honest about that, right? But what do you have in this sort of victim culture uh, of, you know, intersectionality? You have uh, a few assumptions that are apps guaranteed to be wrong, right, doing all the heavy lifting. So one, one assumption is, any place you look in culture, wherever you see the, the representation of the people involved deviate from the, the population at large, right? So you look at the, you look at the set of all uh, computer software engineers, or you look at the set of all oncologists, right? If 13% of, of those groups are not African-American, the only explanation for that departure from the, nor the, the norm is racism. Right? If half of each of those groups isn't female, the only explanation is sexism. Right. Misogyny. So, so so the problem becomes then when it actually is true, it's it's, it's no we're not able to yeah. devote resources accordingly to the actual problem situations. And like and I think that happens in general in victim culture. Like if everyone says they're a victim, then no one's a victim. You can't right. really devote resources to help the actual victims. Yeah, and, and I mean, this it's just a it's in, it's it's grievance inflation, right? Which is which harms people, which is guaranteed to harm people. So you know, if I mean, take the the Me Too movement, right? Completely valid, necessary. Of course, some version of this is exactly what we want to have happening. But if you're not going to distinguish a bad joke from groping. And you're not going to distinguish groping from date rape. And you're not going to distinguish date rape from the guy who climbs through your window in the night with a knife and, and rapes you, right? I mean, these are all, these bear almost no relationship to each other, right? And yet we have one rubric of just kind of, sec, you know, male on female sexual indiscretion that is just, casting its shadow over all of this. And there, there are people who are acting like they're equally worried and, and triggered by each of these. And that's just, it's so, it's so unhelpful because you can't talk about, I mean, it, 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 if you're over here saying that, well, you know, 
Al Franken is no different from, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein, right? You make it impossible to actually put enough uh, – uh, basically, you've got like $10 worth of concern, and you, if you spend five over here, you've only got five to spend over here. You're devaluing real victims if you're, if you're equating all of these things. Right. So, so what do you think – what do you think will happen? It doesn't, it, it, it seems like trends like this only get worse. It doesn't, it doesn't really seem like historically people get angry and angrier and angrier and angrier. Like this is a continuation of Occupy Wall Street and trends even going back further. What, is there any, any solution or hope in your, in your view? Well, I think, you know, I think that it can get worse and worse and worse up to a point where then it just becomes a reductio ad absurdum of itself. It becomes unsustainable. But that because, almost seems like it's already happened two years ago. Like, yeah, no one one would hope it would feel that way to more people because I mean, it feel, it's been feeling that way for me for you know quite some time. But I think we will reach some kind of tipping point where it's just it becomes unsustainable because it's just a circular firing squad. I mean, it just it will be, begin to feel that way and look that way. To everyone, I mean, it's impossible to be so woke that there won't be somebody coming up to the left of you, ready to destroy you for your not having, you know, said exactly the the, the perfect thing, you know, that because I mean, the ta the taboos are closing in on all sides, right? I mean, there's just no space left to occupy. If you're, I mean, there, there are people who are getting destroyed for just pausing before they endorse a transgender you know combat athlete you know who so so a a a man who a, a biological man who's transitioned to a woman who's competing as a as a female MMA fighter and just you know bloodying and battering biological women with all of the advantages of having grown up a man, you know, like you know, a, a male skeleton, male muscle mass, testosterone for the first twenty years of life, and you know, you get a haircut and cha and change a few things, and all of a sudden you're a woman who's just wrecking every woman who steps into the cage with him. At a certain point, you this this begins to look a little strange, right? And how many women have to get knocked out before women begin to feel like, wait a minute, this is. This this has gone a little too far. There will be a thousand examples of this kind of thing, right? There will, and and ones we can't even anticipate. Where things just just we will stumble upon data, which will make these these cherished, pol purely political uh, notions unsustainable, right? And so, um, and we just you know decent decent honest people are the only people who will be able to course correct for these things. Although everyone thinks that kind of belonging to one of these groups, it's this massive group think, makes them decent, honorable people. They've or, they've passed the test. They're they're in the group. They're they they found well, their intersection. Well, it's I mean it's, it's I mean the honesty is honesty is the crucial variable. So I got into this with with Ezra Klein of uh, of Vox, um, where I had I had Charles Murray on my podcast and I had a conversation with him. Charles Murray of of Bell Cur the, the Bell Curve fame, you know, he wrote a book uh, which got him defenestrated. Uh, you know, twenty twenty five years I, ago. IQs of what 
the the claim is the accusation against the book is that he says that the IQs of white people are higher than IQs of other races. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, that there's there's a. I mean, the the book is, is the 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 most controversial passages in the book are amazingly uncontroversial given the reputation that this, this book has acquired. Uh, but the book has been enshrined as a kind of as a toxic racist. Uh, manifesto of some kind, which it which it isn't, but there's just a, there's a fact that we have IQ data that uh, from various populations comes out that the, the mean level of IQ in various populations is different, right? And let's just step back for a second and ask yourself, what's the prospect of? Well, let's take it off IQ for a second. Every, any, anything you can name about a human being that you could care about, intelligence is just one thing. You know, sense of humor, so, you know, any, any anything that we could we could imagine that we can quantify, athletic ability, longevity, you know, resistance to various diseases, you know, the strength of your immune system. Uh, just make a list of a hundred th- things about a person that you could conceivably care about. Conscientiousness, right? All of these things will have some genetic. Uh, underpinning and some cultural or environmental underpinning, right? There's no, and there's nothing left, right? There's just, there's, there's your genes and the influences upon the organism. And some combination of those two things is tuning all of these variables, right? And then you select identifiable groups that differ with respect to their genetics to some degree because their their ancestors were geographically isolated for a long enough time to so that there is genetic variation, and they differ with respect to their culture to some degree, right? So you can select black African-Americans, blacks and whites in, in an American context. You can select different groups of black people in Africa. Africa is, in fact, the most genetically diverse continent at the moment. So, you know, West Africans versus East Africans and even, you know, sub-tribal subsets within those populations very you get very different phenotypes i mean you get you get it's just not an accident that that you know, the best sprinters in the world you know if you look at the finals of of the 100 meter dash in any olympics for the last you know 40 years you see west africans no matter where they came from it's like the, the guy who's winning from france is going to be west african because there is just there's some incredible genetic advantage clearly this this one can't be cultural for sprinting, you know, and and fast twitch mu- muscle fiber, in in East Africans, in, the, you know, in a subset of Kenyans, right, and Ethiopians, you get you know the, the the top ten marathoners in any marathon for the last several decades, right? These are not accidents, right? This is not we didn't no one and there's nothing politically invidious about this either. This is fine. We can deal with this, right? But it is simply a fact that any group of people, any any groups you identify, if you are going to test the mean values of any of these hundred things you care about, intelligence, conscientiousness, anything else on the list, it would be an absolute miracle if those mean values were the same, right? If you test Norwegians against Italians, if you, t- if you test firstborn children of any race or any nationality against fourthborn children, you're not going to get the same values. It, it would be absolutely impossible. Or interestingly, as has been pointed out in a lot of research, if you compare people born in January to people born in December for various reasons, right. lots of results like athletic ability come out different. 
Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that, and that that could be just noise. I mean, that could just be you know ultimately a sampling error, but there could be a reason for that, right? There could be an immunological reason for that. It's well, the, the the theory is is that when they're young, a a, a ten month difference in age is a high percentage difference uh, in their lifespans. So they are probably athletically better at a young age. So they get more coaching and tutoring and so on. So that propels them into adulthood. Yeah. Or I mean, again, I'm just guessing here, but you could also, you're talking about the time that the, the months during which a woman was pregnant. So you imagine just what, what, what are the, what's the susceptibility to, to illness during various periods of the year, you know, and how does that affect, uh, um, uh, a baby in utero? Um, all of this stuff is possible. I mean, the, the firstborn and fourthborn data, uh, I believe, are, are fairly alarming. Which is the the economic and educational prospects of a fourthborn child compared to a firstborn child or an only child are massively diminished. Right? We could have a whole victim group start up around fourthborn children. Mm-hmm. Right? Where are they complaining? Right? I mean, they have a legitimate complaint. You just started it right now. Yeah, as yeah. Get, a, get the out podcast. there, boys and girls. I mean, you you have something to complain about because you're. The prospect that you're going to finish college is it's like is reduced by a third or something. I mean, it's it's, it's significant. It's 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 um, uh, and yet we're not burning a lot of fuel over this. I'm not, it's, as should be obvious, and it's you know it's just nauseating to even feel that I have to say this. I'm obviously not denying that we have problems with racism and sexism and other forms of bigotry, but. We have to have. We have to grow up. We have to be able to talk about facts, and we have to be. We have to, uh, and an ability to do that, an ability to absorb whatever facts are coming our way, whether we're looking for them or not, could be easily safeguarded by just a clear commitment to some ba- basic ethical goals. I mean, we if if we know that we want to live in a society that is ultimately colorblind, right? If we know we want to get more and more bored every time someone says, well, as a black man or as a Jew or as a lesbian, if we want that, we want to diminish the significance of all of that, right? We just want people to be people living as creative and as beautiful lives as they can possibly find for themselves. We know what the end goal is, right? I mean, you know, it's Martin Luther King. You know, you know, the content of your character is what should concern me, right? So, but people don't think that way. Like, like, and again, this seems a lot related to your conversation about cognitive biases. We we want to be liked. We join the group where there's authority that we respect and has and has credibility in some way, some kind of social proof, mm. and. Once we're in that group, it's like we sign up for all the other beliefs of that group in the most extreme way. So for instance, let's just hypothetically say there's there's the gun lobby. So you're either pro people having guns or against people having guns. There's no middle ground. You have to be an extreme. Like either right. you want to sell little kids machine guns or you, you can't even sell water guns to people. Like people now take more and more extremes. But then there's the other factor, which is that, okay, since I'm anti-guns, it must mean I'm also anti or pro this, 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 and this. All the other, I got to check down the menu of everything this group believes. I might be, it might mean um, pro-Palestine or feel this way about me too or pro-choice or whatever. They're all, it, it's kind of all these different issues are lumped together into one group. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, so that's clearly pathological because there's no logical relationship. Right, to, and yet that's where everyone's going. That's the direction. Uh, if you look on your Facebook feed, maybe not you, but for most people, they're going to see just those opinions. Yeah, you know, and and it, it seems whether it's algorithmic or societal. You know, I don't know what the causes are, and and it seems like difficult to find solutions because you're rewarded. You get that dopamine hit if you join the group in the right way. Well, what you're describing is the behavior of a cult. People are are finding themselves inducted into various cults and and it used to be the behavior of a cult. Cult is small. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Now it's half of society. Yeah. And the other half, it's both halves. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's, and this is something I've pointed out before. It's, it, it should be strange to everyone that given one data point, if I, if I know your position on climate change, I've, with, with a high order of confidence, I can predict your position on guns, right? I mean, that, right. That's crazy. Right, like right, they have nothing to do yeah, with each other. These are these are complex issues that don't have many points of contact. I mean, I, I think you could you could probably find something, um, but there are many things like this. So you know, gay marriage. If I know, if I know you're against gay marriage, you know, I'll I'll enter this casino. I'll st- I'll spend all day long in this casino being able to place bets on your position on a, you know half a dozen other things, um, and. This is a. This is what happens when people are don't actually care enough that their beliefs are true. But they right? think they care. That's yeah, the thing is they yeah. think they they, but, they but get active what, actually because yeah. they care so much. Yeah, but I mean, a, a real education is intrusive, right? A real education is a a uh, pressure from without that intrudes into your patterns of thinking. And re and and shoves things around. I mean, you 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 need to like it, you, the process of getting educated. And this is something that we're we seem to be losing touch with, even in our institutions of of uh, highest learning. I mean, when you have you know students at Yale shrieking about the significance of Halloween costumes and calling for their professors to be fired because they you know they they haven't been been given a sufficiently safe space. Um, you're seeing the most privileged young people on earth in in a place that is the, the whole purpose of a place like Yale is to it is a, it is a machine into which you want to put bright young minds and tune them to be interested in finding out what's true and 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 give you want to give them all the tools to do that and what many of these people are telling us they want out of this this opportunity is the safest and least offensive kind of coddling right i mean there's there's a, there's a mismatch maybe the higher institutions though aren't the place for education anymore because well, i mean what we're, we're, we're all, what are we what are we graduating every the students are now firing their professors yeah uh what are they actually learning no well i mean the the, the only tuition's going up faster than inflation for 30 straight years in a row. Yeah, I mean, in this case, I think the, I mean, it's, easy, it's very easy to put the onus on the students, but, but the onus is, is really on the administrators in, in most of these schools because the, the, what's happening is that the administrators are caving in and they're not actually defending the, the, the intellectual freedom of, of professors. You know, I mean, and, and it's just, 
it is a kind of, you know, Maoist uh, uh, m- mob uh, dynamic there, where like well, once you once you get a sufficient number of people complaining, uh, it's just. I mean, the, the experience of anyone who's been in this situation, where, uh, and this is especially true of, uh, among academics, but I think I mean, this, is, this is you know I've been in this situation and, I, and I'm not an ac- academic. When you put yourself out there in a way that draws the ire of the the, the internet outrage culture, what you ha- what you s- experience to a disconcerting degree are the private communications of people who agree with you and support you privately, but who don't have the courage to do that publicly. Right, because right? it seems like the outrage, for all we know, is still a small minority of the people who are paying attention to your content. That's why. You have a popular podcast, your books do well, people are responding to you, but what you're seeing personally, what people are arguing over are just the psychos on some social media platform that don't like something you said. And that might be a minority, we don't know, they're the loudest voices, it's yeah, a vocal minority. But but they're so loud that they're effective on the majority. So, so, so I mean, for instance, like, you know, I've said things in this podcast, I mean, as defensively as I've, you know, caveated them, I've said these things in the last hour that most journalists, politicians, and academics would be terrified to say, and for good reason, right? Like, the, you know, I've been, I've been, you know, I, I, who knows where the line really is, but I know in various moments here, I've been close to it, you know, and there, there, you know, I, I just have a weird job where it would be very hard to fire me, right? So it's like, I, I, I have, you know, I can take risks that, that even very prominent, people can't take. I mean, you take someone like, you know, Megyn Kelly, who's a, a recent great example. Like, she's got a, a $20 million contract with NBC and one wrong utterance, right, that she can't apparently sufficiently, you know, apologize for or explain, and it's over, right? The Right, and you have to caveat it always because you can't say, so she's made some comment about, well, what's wrong with... What's, she, what's wrong she with... Rose the, raised the question, what's wrong with blackface? Now, we have to caveat that's perhaps, given the context, an incredibly insensitive thing to say. Maybe a lot of many people were offended by it. But you also look back, and and we're also seeing this kind of uh, in Virginia politics. Every politician, it seems, is either worn blackface or handed out cotton at Halloween or whatever. But then you have Ted Danson, you know, right. famously wore blackface. I don't know to some with Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, right? with Whoopi right. Goldberg and. He's his career. I'm not saying one should wear blackface and one shouldn't. I'm just saying that you, like you said earlier, there's unfair treatment across across it, the line, depending on whose team you're on. It's just we have. If we're grown ups, we need to be able to talk about these things, and it's and it's we have to care about what is actually true. So let me take the Megyn Kelly case. Megyn Kelly. And again, I, I, I have to caveat it. I don't know if there's a picture of her somewhere, you know, riding on a you know a clan, clan ride with a hood on her head. But uh, if she is who I think she seems to be to me, she's someone who is guilty of simply not knowing how charged this phrase blackface was. Right? She didn't. She doesn't know all the historical antecedents. She doesn't know about minstrel shows, or certainly wasn't thinking of that them at the time. So what she was saying is, you know, why, why, why can't, if you're going to dress up like Mr. T or Diana Ross for Halloween, 
why can't you put the makeup on that's going to make you look like Mr. T or, or Diana Ross, right? Like, what, like, the, like when I was a kid, I, I thought we could do that, right? I, I don't know how far she wanted to go in that direction, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that suggests that what's really true of her is that she's got this deep racial bias where she just doesn't care about black people, wants them to be unhappy, wants them to live in an uh, in unfair, you know, uh, uh, status in society and has a special fondness for racist depictions of black people. None of that, right? It's just like, it's like, wait a minute, let's just, uh, this is, I'm confused about this. Like if I, you know, what's wrong with putting on an Afro wig, right? Grownups have to be able to, have to be able to ask questions like that and much far more provocative questions. I mean, the, the truth is that's not even a provocative right. question. And in my world, that doesn't even raise an eyebrow, right? I mean, it's just like, you, you need to be able to, to and this is the example I've given before, if you're in a philosophy seminar, you need to be able to say, listen, all right, we're trying to get to, down to moral bedrock here, so tell me, why can't we eat babies, right? There are unwanted babies in the world, they're full of protein, why can't we eat them, right? Now, granted, in the wrong context, you sound like a psychopath. I mean, we, you're not going to say that on a political campaign, but given the right context, in this case, a philosophy seminar, that is a completely reasonable and amusing thing to say, right? Or no, in a comedy club, that would be that, yeah. that sounds like a beginning of a great bit, right? So, but no, but so, but what matters is what's actually true. Is this somebody who really is an aspiring cannibal who just wants to get you know access to to human babies, or is this a thought experiment that has a deeper purpose? And in the presence, the the, the problem we're running into politically is that we have people and and. and they're disproportionately on the left, unfortunately. Unfortunately, because I, you know, I, I think I want the I want the liberals to win in some basic sense. I mean, I consider you know liberal values to be, you know, the most enlightened across the board. But on the left, we have people who do not care what's true, right? Like like if if they could do a full moral inventory of Megyn Kelly, right, and you see into her soul, and they would discover there that she does not have a racist bone in her body, right? She just simply didn't, she just simply said the wrong words, right? She didn't know what the phrase blackface really meant, right? Um, they don't care. Let's break that egg to make this omelet, right? That's what. That's who we're dealing with on the left. Right, so, so, so I agree, and I maybe, maybe where we might disagree is I'm pessimistic that it's going to get better. Now, yeah. I don't know if it was worse in 1968 or you know there was students rioting you don't really see the exact same thing happening now i don't know if it was worse in the past but it definitely seems like extreme all across every level of society and accentuated by maybe the social media algorithms maybe not i don't know but so so does it get in your view does it get better or can we individually just focus on ourselves and and kind of pull out from the group think arguments. Well, I think it can get better. I mean, I, I'm certainly I'm having conversations like this and in the, the kinds of conversations I have on my podcast under the assumption that they matter, right? You know, like so, like if I thought nothing could change, I would be far less motivated to do this. And if uh, certainly if I thought this was going to make things worse, well, then I wouldn't do this, right? I mean, so so there is an assumption built in that making sense on these issues and uh, trying to push both myself and others through argument toward 
more consistency uh, in how we think about just the nature of reality. Um, I think it, it has to lead to a good place. And I, now I'm just, I, I pause because I remembered uh, when I mentioned Ezra Klein, I remember the example that I, w- I was wanted to drive to and I, f- I forgot to get to it. But th- this is the kind of thing that worries me, right? So, and this is something that I brought up to Ezra in our in our podcast together and for, for which he had no response because he is in fact part of this cult that actually can't process this uh, these data in this form. Here, you know, a few years ago, it was found that that Homo sapien DNA and Neanderthal DNA are are mingled in every human population. I think that we are aware of now, except for those who have, who never whose ancestors never left Africa. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so Africans are a hundred percent Homo sapiens. You and I, and and Asians, uh, and uh, literally everyone else, there's something around, you know, 2.7% Neanderthal, right? Mm-hmm. So at the time, you know, this was, you know, I thought this was hilarious, as did many people. And at the time, uh, I think it was 2014, I tweeted, attention all racists, you were right. Whites are special. Uh, we're part Neanderthal. Blacks are just human, right? Uh, something like that, right? So it was just it was just me trolling the world's racists, right? And so and and also just you know kind of virtue signaling, I guess, or 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 you know revealing my bias, which I think is totally uh, justifiable. That it, it's good that there's something that makes racism look even more ridiculous than it in fact is. Um, but what if the data had come back the other way, right? What if just by dint of bad luck, the guy in the lab who found that these data found that the look the only people who are part Neanderthal are black right this would have been just a this would have been a career ending discovery for this person right the the scientist who spoke about this honestly the journalist who reported on it honestly would have been destroyed right that's coming right the data of that kind that whether we're looking for it or not are going to just land in our microscopes and in our Labs, and we will we are we are advertising to ourselves now that we are totally incapable of talking about this like grown-ups right that we are, we're so we're we're so worried that our politics can't survive facts that we're willing to ruin anyone who who uh, who by again by by even by accident is caught standing on the wrong set of facts, right? And so there, there are people who are who are, pretend- and it's even more because their careers are rewarded for ruining exactly the others. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I don't think things get better before they get more worse, because well, there's well, still the un- those rewards. The, the, the unsustainability of this has to be become more salient, right? So and th- and this is what I mean. When you're talking to somebody like Ezra Klein, and he has no answer for this, that has to matter. Now the problem is. It only it matters to my audience. It doesn't matter to his, right? And because and and so that that every audience has to become more and more sensitive to the ways in which they are becoming cult like, right? And therefore un, unreasonable, uh, and they're and therefore vulnerable to internal contradictions that will show just the, their their operating system to be unsustainable, and so. I mean, I think we, we owe it to ourselves to to care about our own contradictions. 
uh, and we owe it to others, those with whom we're arguing, to uh, continue to point out their internal contradictions. I mean, this is this is actually the most compelling sort of uh, criticism of another p- person's view. It's not. It's 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 one thing to say. I mean, if we're arguing about you know religion or or climate change or whatever it is, if I'm pointing to facts over there that you don't acknowledge, right? It's a it's a very weak argument. I, I can't make a lot of headway with you. But if I can if I can show you the way in which your own assumptions, your own axioms, are in conflict with themselves, right? That, like you that, that you actually can't functionally believe what you say you believe at you know everything at the same time, right? I mean, you could believe so one thing on Monday and another thing on Tuesday, but if you try to get those two the, the Monday truths and the Tuesday truths to to cohere, you're actually in contradiction with yourself. That's a much more powerful rebuttal to you, and we we have to. But that's where people have the bias, though. They just won't admit it. Yeah, they won't yeah, see. Well, yeah, yeah. And so I'm just wondering. What that's why is, this is a very frustrating job to, what, to argue like, about. These. And, and maybe the solution is like, look at your background. You live. You've lived a very different sort of career path than most people. You mm-hmm. you left college for ten years to visit India, explore meditation explore all sorts of alternative ways of living. Uh, you 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 kind of did everything out of order. You wrote seminal books before getting the PhD where some parts of society would say you had you should have waited. Mm. Um, you kind of you know did your own path and maybe that's maybe just education from a beginning level has to change and encourage kids to to do to take a look at alternative ways of, of living. And that's how you have develop alternative viewpoints. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, well, I think what it means to be educated is continually shifting because it's it's not. It, it, at one point, it meant uh, memorizing a lot of facts, right? I mean, it's like if you if you could if you just had a great memory, you could be very well educated. Well, uh, on some level, technology is making that less and less relevant. I mean the fact that you can you you have the totality of human knowledge accessible to you, you know, from this smartphone in your pocket, uh, it's a we have a different different challenges, right? Then then it's like how how can you actually vet the information that's coming to you? You know, every every time you turn on this fire hose of of data, uh, how intelligent can you be in in just judging what you should pay attention to. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think a lot will have to be rethought in terms of how we teach people to think clearly and deal with information. And um, and just how we, we uh, more and more, we have to recognize that culture is a kind of operating system. And it's it's got lots of bugs and it's got, I mean, we're, we're, we're inside this thing that is, delivering our minds to us. I mean, like our minds are not just what our brains are doing in each moment. I mean, our, our minds are, are external. Like everything around us is, a, is an idea on some level. I mean, a water bottle is, is an idea made manifest. And um, we're not aware of how more and more of this is up for grabs, right? We're not, we're not aware of how the 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 ch- how memes are constraining how we think, uh, making 
certain types of thoughts possible or impossible. Uh, and they're being, you know, it's they're made physically manifest. I mean, the the, the, the fact that just the fact that we have this technology available to us where uh, it feels like you should be. I mean, it's just it's just changed the sense of what it is to be a friend or a or a or a spouse or it's like like you're it changes the sense of what what a human relationship is. I mean, I have I have friends who I have almost never met physically, right? Like I have friends who are real friends, but the, the virtually the totality of our relationship is email, right? What is that, right? That's a that's a that's a new thing, right? And these these friends may know more about things I really care about than my real my quote real friends who I hang out with a lot in you know physical space and and who who know me in a very different way. But I have some people who I would I would call even my best friends who know much less of what I think about these sorts of topics than than you do right now, right? So it's like, and yet all of this is this is a weird landscape psychologically and socially that has only come into being based on changes in technology and very recent changes in technology. And so, so taking that one step further, you know, and this is a slightly different tangent, but some aspects of this growing technology is ultimately going to surpass our ability to control or predict it. You have a very uh, negative uh, outlook on that you know, from like your recent uh, TED talk from a couple of years ago, you mm. know, just w- the direction AI is going, you sort of see this generalized intelligence that could be 20, 50, 100,000 times more powerful than our own brains that could decide to just discard us. And that's that's kind of on your landscape yeah. of how the world could end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that I'm I'm worried about and I'm, 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 I'm doubly worried about it because it, I've, it's very hard to worry about it. I mean, it's, it's it's the kind of thing where if you think about it, you talk about it, it's kind of fun to think about and talk about. And right, because life gets better and better until, in, in your scenario, life is just going to get better and better and better until there's this utopian tipping point where it becomes infinitely bad, like Terminator bad. Well, it, well it, it, not necessarily, but it's, it's just that the thing that I notice about these AI danger scenarios is that they feel different to talk to worry about, and it's kind of fun to worry about them. So even even the the kind of the, the emotional valence of being worried feels different than worrying about something else that would would also spell the ruination of well, everything well, we care about. Climate change theorists are right. correct in that this generation, New York City is going to be underwater. The North Pole is going to melt. Let's just take the worst case scenario. Right. That feels like dangerous physically right now. If in the worst case, well, well, well the problem is it doesn't. So I mean, so each one of these things is different. I mean, so, I mean, climate change is another reference point that's interesting because we we just we can't really get ourselves to care about climate change. You know, it's like I mean, honestly, I I don't know how many minutes uh, a week I spend thinking about climate change, but it's tiny. I mean, it's embarrassingly tiny, right? I'll acknowledge that it's a a real problem and may in fact be the, you know on the short shortest of short lists of of you know biggest problems we face uh but it is it's almost impossible to really 
get motivated by. It's it's this slow moving emergency. I mean, first of all, I'm not you know, I'm I'm not close to the data, right? Like the fact that there's any that that that, that you can get fake PhDs or real PhDs or deranged PhDs to stand up and say, listen, you know, all these models are wrong. You know, this has been ex- exaggerated uh, for decades. Uh, that puts a seed of doubt into many people's minds. The fact that we know this thing is so politicized that it's very likely that there is some exaggeration. There is some, you know, some uh, model creep and um, gaming of the discourse because it's, it is just in this, in, in, based on the, the the moral necessity of getting this across, trying to get some appropriate emotional reaction to what is in fact a very scary scenario, even the most scrupulous scientists will be led to start talking like politicians, right? This is, this is all of this is just so, I mean, the, the fact that we that I know that to, to be skeptical about climate change is to basically sign your death warrant, you know, you know, academically or intellectually. Um, uh, it's, you know, I understand that those incentives are not good for an honest conversation about the data, right? So the truth is, I believe the part. I believe I believe the party line on climate change, but I, I find the topics so boring compared to other topics that I spend no time looking into it, right? So I basically, I just check. You know, if you ask me for an inventory of my beliefs. And, you know, I check the climate change box, you know, I'll check that all day long because it's easy to, but I, 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 I spend much more time thinking about more vivid concerns. Well, right? like, so, wouldn't AI, uh, like death by AI fall under that category as well? Like, we well, don't really... It, it's like, just a different one. It's like, so... Like, like it, AI, we, it, the way AI broken down into the actual software works is mostly statistics, you know, some right. advanced you know, different advanced statistics that in the math basically improves over time and the hardware improves over time. But it's not like there's any sense that there's real intelligence happening. There's there's no consciousness happening, for instance. Well, con- I think consciousness is separable. So let me just to, to put this into context. So the climate change is one problem that, you know, I think virtually anyone who's looked at the data, and you, I mean, you're kind of relying on the authority. If, if you're not the one who's become a climatologist and looked at the data... You're just relying on on what is being advertised to you from the the, the, the conversations among you know those who have, um, you know, cli- the fact that climate change is is human induced and seriously problematic seems to have a level of of credence among scientists that's analogous to like you know smoking is bad for your health, right? So it's like it's a real problem. So, and I don't doubt that, but again. It's a problem that is so uh, amorphous and so caveated, and the time horizon is long enough that, uh, and the the description of it is is uh, misleadingly benign enough. It's like like I, like you know two percent a, a two degree change in in global you know uh, uh, t- average temperature. That doesn't sound bad, right? Now people say, "Well, this is you know, the, that correlates with this level of sea, sea level rise," and right, but it's it's impossible to make it vivid in the way that you could make, or it's 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 apparently impossible to make it vivid enough to be able to compare it with 
an analogous disaster like, you know, a pandemic flu, right, that kills some horrendous proportion of humanity, right? And yet it may be an equivalent problem. So we have problems that where we, it's just by the nature of the problem and the and the kind of the, the quickness of their onset, you know, are, they could, they should be seen as analogous, but we've, we, you know, we just, we, we can't get them to, to look analogous. And it, we just know we have bugs in our system of, of moral appraisal where, I mean, I talked about this with Danny Kahneman last night. I mean, we just know that if you, if there's a narrative that can be personalized, if a problem can be crystallized with around a person's story, right? One little girl falls down a well, you know, and she's, she's going to run out of oxygen. You know, CNN will cover that, you know, 24 hours a day until that girl is pulled out of that well, right? But if I tell you that there's 500,000 girls in Sudan who are, you know, quickly starving to death, right? Or if there's a, you know, cholera epidemic that's going to wipe them out over the course of the next month, people just, uh, the, the, it, again, that's the sort of thing that's so boring that the news can't even afford to cover it because they're going to lose viewers, right? Um, it's just, we know we have to correct for this, right? In any case, what's unique about the AI problem for me is that not only is it kind of hard to imagine, it's fun to imagine even the worst outcomes, right? You get this sort of you know science fiction thrill from it so that even while you're thinking through the the potential downside of you know suddenly finding yourself in relationship to super intelligent machines that have their own goals say um, and that can improve themselves it's just kind of cool to talk about right it doesn't you don't feel like you don't feel like you're talking about cholera right and and uh, that's just a, 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 a what I view as a kind of a unique liability there that it's just, it's like you don't, you're sort of worrying doesn't feel like worrying. And yet worrying is, is something that it seems very important to do in that space because we're, you only need a, you only need a couple of assumptions to get on this train. And then there's, uh, I can't see a way off. One, one assumption is that, there's nothing magical about having a computer made of meat, right? Like you, you, like if intelligence is just a matter of what information processings of a certain complexity do, and there's every reason to think that that's true, there's nothing magical about the, the material in our heads that's doing it. So you can build intelligence into machines in a way that's substrate independent. We already know this is true for narrow intelligence. We know our calculators really calculate. You know, we know we know that you can process information in machines. Uh, and then the question is: Is there something magical about general intelligence, so-called general intelligence, that cannot be arrived at by any process we can we can set working in in machines and there's just no reason to think that that's true. There's nothing. I mean, you, you'd have to imagine that in addition to the meat computer we have, we have some uh, spooky stuff that could never be in the machines, right? That there's no, that, that, that it's not, that intelligence isn't at bottom a matter of the hardware and software uh, 
that is is set running on these machines. And the moment you you dispense with those assumptions and acknowledge that the that that intelligence is a matter of information processing and that that this can be done in any material that can process information, well then you just have to acknowledge that any pace of progress. We don't need Moore's law to continue. We just need to keep making progress. Will it eventually deliver us a, a, a superhuman level of intelligence in our machines? Right, but there's also no evidence. We don't know, like you say, we maybe this, our intelligence might be just the, the way our, our brain basically works like this advanced computer. We don't know where consciousness plays con- a role in that. Consciousness is irrelevant because consciousness is just unless that's what causes generalized intelligence. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think there's any reason to think that's true. I mean, and it wouldn't even. I mean, most of what our mind, well, most of what our brains do is unconscious, right? And most of, and most competence, you can easily imagine uh, increasing competence in any domain. That's never associated with consciousness. It's never, never the, there's never something that is like to be that system processing that information, and yet it, and yet it's effective in the world. So, like, to, I mean, just take chess as the, as the simplest example. Chess was something that only humans did until we built machines that began to do it by very different principles, computationally, no doubt, than than, than human brains do it, but more and more and more effectively until you get get to a certain point where the the best chess player on earth is a machine, right? And it doesn't matter that it doesn't know it's playing chess. It doesn't matter that it has no consciousness. In that domain, it is more effective than a person, right? Now we're still, now we're in this kind of, this, uh, uh, I would argue, brief epoch where the combination of the best human chess player and the best computer is better than than any computer. Is that true? Got carry in the room? Is the combination okay. of a, it used to be, right? The combination of a human and a computer. Is it still true? Because when you were on my podcast, you were quite sanguine about it being true for a very long time. Is it still true? Yes, it is. Uh, the combination okay. is, What you said five minutes ago was not. What, 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 what wasn't true? general intelligence. I, told, I disagree completely with what you said. What part of it? Yeah, you, you, general you, intelligence. What about general intelligence? It's 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 not achievable for machine the way it's, I see it. Okay, because, because so, like take take Deep Blue for example that right. that beat Gary. Sorry, Gary. Uh, take Deep Blue as an example. The way they the way it won was by stripping out the the any notion of intelligence. It was it kind of reduced the AI and to speed up the hardware is how it kind of changed from 1997 to 1998. But to your point, that doesn't matter. However, it does it. It was able to mimic human intelligence, and 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 we'll be able to find that in in more and more domains until it's enough domains that it almost seems human like that we have lots of. I think that's what Gary means by generalized intelligence. Well, so no, there's there's two things we could mean, and there I would grant you that they're different, and this difference may matter for some things, but it won't matter for everything. So there's there's uh, the possibility of building a. My an artificial mind that is very, very, very similar to a human mind in in what we mean by a general capacity for intelligence, uh, and it's and then there and then there's another version where we could, in a more piecemeal way, build kind of knit together a lot of separate narrow intelligences 
that don't totally cohere. They're not they're not general in this in this first sense, but this they're still massively effective in all of their domains, and they, they cover you know the top hundred domains say that we care about, right? So you take the top you t- take the top hundred things that we care that humans are good at, and we manage to knit together all these specialized intelligences which are superhuman, and yet there's still some place to stand and say, well, that's not really general intelligence, but man, that thing is better at chess and it's better at reading facial expression and it's better at detecting emotion and it's, be- it's, it's better at, at every, we just keep adding to the list of things it's better at and, that, and now we're in relationship to that thing. But there's no reason to think it's conscious and there's, and it's, there's still something we haven't figured out about this other thing which we're now calling general intelligence. Now, a couple things to say about that. One... The human brain is also sort of a little like this, the just Jerry built thing. That, you know that I just uh, uh, referred to. You know, in, a, in derogatory terms, uh, but there's just no reason to think that that whatever general intelligence is in our case or could be ultimately is substrate dependent. That it has to be made of meat. I mean, just think of just. I mean. Uh, this is it's an effective rhetorical device to keep saying the word meat because meat is not a promising substrate here compared to all other pot. I mean, there's, it it would be ridiculous if we lived in a universe where this the, the, what we know to be information processing uh, that 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 the crucial part of information processing that led to uh, general intelligence or even consciousness was was had to be biological. I mean, we know that there are arguments that can be made computationally, there are arguments that can be made logically that falsify this. I mean, if I, as long as I give you an, if I give you an artificial neuron that has the same input and output characteristics of a, of a biological neuron, and I swap it in, you know, provided the input and output characteristics are the same, you should expect this, it, it to have the same functional consequences in your nervous system, right? Uh, then just start adding neurons like that, then all of a sudden you will have an artificial brain that is doing the same, has the exact same computational property. I guess we don't know how complex that really is. There's no science that could tell us it, how far, we, we could be we may never get there. Yeah, oh, sure. That, I mean, that, that's, if, that, if it is even possible at all. Yeah, no, I'm arguing, I, no, no, yeah. The, the, the doubt about its possibility I would argue is just obviously specious. Whether we're going to get there or not is a. I mean, that's just a. a uh, that's just a question of you know what is is achievable you know, and 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 when it's achievable. But I would I would argue that there are a few kind of failure modes of of our thinking about this that are consequential. One is that we're not many people who are skeptical. Of, of the kinds of noises I'm making now, who think there's nothing to worry about. I mean, someone like, um, I mean, a very famous uh, statement in the AI community now is is to, to, to worry about this is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, right? I mean, like, this is just, this is so far away that we've got so many other things to worry about. This is just, you know, you're, it's just synonymous with a waste of brain power. Well, to, to, this has a few built-in assumptions, right? So to say that this is so far away that we don't have to worry about it 
uh, is to assume that the time we have between now and when it arrives is enough time to, to solve all the problems we need to solve to do this safely, right? So we don't know how much time that is. But if I say, you know, it, most people would find it consoling if we said, you know, if all, if all you know, AI scientists agreed, this is not going to happen for 75 years. Right? No way we get superhuman AI in the next 74 years. Probability zero. Okay, well, that, that should only be consoling to people who care about the far future, provided we have some reason to believe that 75 years is enough time to get our house in order. And to figure out how to build superhuman AI that is truly aligned with with human well-being, uh, because again, it, it seems fairly obvious that there are there are, you know in the space of all possible superhuman minds, there are more ways to build build. There are more of them that are that, that would not be perfectly aligned with our well-being than those that would be. Right? This it's just like there's no in the same way that we're not aligned with with the lesser intelligences that we trample upon all the time it's not it's not that we 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 hate them you know it's not that we it's like you know there're birds out in the trees over there that we whose well-being we disregard all the time it's not we don't we haven't declared war on the birds but just when we decide to build a building like this or or do whatever you know per, pursue any ends we care about we're not thinking about the birds you know, the, the birds are an afterthought. And if we wind up killing some birds or ruining their habitats, they're just not on our radar. And there are more superhuman intelligences like that than those that we could build that would constantly track our, you know, what we want, what we wish they would do for us and with us, right? We, 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 what we want to build is, because it I mean, here's the here's the primary failure of imagination I keep encountering with people. People imagine that we build that you know, we'll build machines that are smarter and more effective and more competent than we are across the board, right? So the best scientist will one day be a computer. The best psychologist will one day be a computer. It'll be just chess as far as the eye can see, right? Uh, what people are then failing to imagine is. We will be in relationship to these minds, right? This is a relationship. This isn't just a tool anymore. I mean, you're not, if, if you're imagining it to, as just a tool, right, or just a curiosity, you're not, you're not actually imagining that level of intelligence. You're not, you're not, you're, it's like if someone walks into the room and sits down at this table and we don't know them, right, but the fact that they walked in and sat down and, and introduced themselves. Okay, we know we're in relationship, right? Like we don't know what this person wants really. We don't know, you know, wh why they, you know, but but there are things we we immediately understand as social primates. We know that the possibility of this person lying to us or manipulating us for his or her own ends, that's obviously on the menu, right? We know this is the kinds of things that minds do. But when you say to someone, when you when you express a concern about AI and you say, well, we're going to build uh, artificial minds that may deceive us, right? That may manipulate us. That sounds absurd. Like, why, why would we ever build a computer that would manipulate us, right? Well, if you think we could never build a computer that would manip manipulate us, you're not actually imagining building a mind, 
You're not ima- you're not imagining what it would like what it will be like to be in relationship to an independent intelligence, right? And there's just no reason to think again uh, on so- whatever time horizon of open ended progress we're not going to build such minds. Yeah, so it's so it's interesting. So as a thought experiment, whether it's real or not, you're basically arguing this is a scenario we have to play out and it could happen, might not, might be so far away, or it might be that the time it takes to build such an intelligence is also the time required that we develop defenses against it. Much in the way, I mean, we could build a, a disease, we could genetically build a, a mutation of the flu that could be released and cause a pandemic. Mm. We can do that today, but for whatever reason, we don't do it. So there's, there's some, it seems like there are some but, but, backstops. Yeah. Well, no, the, but the problem is, is that there, there aren't those backstops because the, how this is unlike synthetic biology or, or um, genetic engineering or anything else that is scary and powerful and, and seems to need regulation or at least need, need some consensus that, that when there are breaks we want to be able to pull. The, the thing that is most, the thing, the thing that is most dangerous about AI uh, is the thing that is also most tempting, right? Whereas in the case of you know nuclear uh, technology uh, or um, genetic engineering, you know germline mutation, right? Like so, like well, like there's a consensus among molecular biologists and and people who would be uh, poised to meddle with the the genome that. There's a uh, there's a difference between making changes to the soma and making changes to the germline, right? Like anything that our descendants are going to uh, in- inherit irrevocably, that requires more ethical thought. And it's uh, but imagine a world in which making cha- changes to the germline was just massively incentivized, right? Where like this is the thing that is going to make you a trillion dollars, right? Like uh, like like the the, the step. To you know, as long as you can change the sperm and the the ovum, that's where the money is, right? That's more the situation we're in with AI, where there we have a kind of arms race uh, condition where we're just trying to get more of it because intelligence is the most valuable thing in the world, right? And this is and this is why there's just there is actually no real break to pull because intelligence is the most valuable thing in the world, right? Intelligence is the thing we need. To get everything else we need, right, and to protect everything we have, it's it is the thing that will cure cancer. I mean, it's you know you know uh, you know deference to Gary, but it's there are more important problems than chess, right? And every problem, if it has an answer, it has an answer based on the creative use of intelligence. And so it's like we we are this is I mean on some level the the only thing scarier. Than not building, than than building superhuman intelligence that's not aligned with our interests is not building superhuman intelligence. We need it, you know. I mean, that we have massive problems that we want to solve. You know, that, like you know, so, from I mean, so you're basically I, saying, I mean, not just, but you're saying basically, this is something that's very positive to society. We just have to keep an eye on it, or we have to kind of. Keep track of where the problems are. Well, it's, no, it's more than keeping an eye on it because I, I would. I've been talking about this a lot lately. I talked, I spoke about this last night with Danny Kahneman 
in the Q&A period, but the, the, the uh, philosopher Nick Bostrom, who wrote the, the book Superintelligence, which actually has done probably more than anything else to make these, these AI concerns fairly vivid to many of us. Uh, uh, I mean, granted, there's, there's, a, there's, a spectrum of, there's a spectrum of concern. There are people who just think this is, again, that this, there's nothing to worry about here. And then the people who think we are more or less guaranteed to annihilate ourselves based on what we're, you know, what we're building, um, and I put some, I put myself somewhere in the middle. But it's a clearly valid thing to worry about. And Nick Bostrom has made a very strong case for for uh, why it's valid to worry about. But he has a larger uh, uh, set of concerns, uh, and he just wrote this essay uh, titled "The uh, The Vulnerable World Hypothesis." And he what he asks us to imagine is what he calls the urn of invention. And it, the urn contains balls of, of various colors. Uh, and we have, uh, throughout his, history, I mean, for, certainly for the last 2,000 years, we have been reaching into this urn and pulling out either white or gray balls. And we've been doing this as uh, kind of rapidly as we can. And, and a white ball is a piece of technology or a meme, or a, a social norm, or an institution, an idea you know, made manifest that has good consequences, right? A water bottle. I mean, this is it's a fairly white ball. This is a super convenient. It's you know there, there's a, a downside with you know plastic you know pollution, but there's uh, so maybe it's a gray ball. So the the other kind of ball we pulled out is a gray ball, which is there there are pros and cons to this technology. It's it gives us you know, there's you know, quintessential gray ball is you know splitting the atom, right? I mean we can get, we can release massive amounts of energy, but that comes with toxic waste and it gives us a, a power to des- destroy ourselves. Uh, it's a fairly gray ball. Uh, the question is, are there any black balls in the urn? Right? We're re- we're reaching into this urn. I mean, our our default setting is. Get your hands into this urn as fast as you can and pull something out, right? That's what science is doing, right? And what he's asking us to consider is there may be some black balls in the urn, which is a piece of technology or a idea that cannot be undiscovered that is so destructive that it spells the end of civilization, right? That we actually can't live in proximity to this idea or insight for very long before we destroy ourselves. And examples of that would be, um, what if nuclear fission were just much easier than it turned out to be? What if there was no fuel cycle needed to enrich uranium or, or plutonium? What if, what if it, you could you could create a a uh, an atom bomb just by taking two pieces of glass and a magnet and sticking them together and just running some current through them? Right? Then we'd be living in a world where you know, after in a few short years, cities everywhere would have gone up in you know in radioactive ash because we do live in a world where you know one in a million people is sufficiently suicidal, callous, nihilistic that they're going to run that experiment. They're just going to blow everything up just because they feel like blowing everything up. I mean, you know, one in a million airline pilots are going to com- commit suicide by just crashing their plane into the ground, right? Uh, be, and not caring that they're killing, they're, they're actually the, the biggest mass murderers, you know, nobody's ever heard of. We don't even know the names of these people, but we know this has happened, right? So if it were that easy for one person to destroy the lives of millions, 
we'd be dead already, right, in this way. So that would be a black ball. It seems fairly plausible that there are some black balls in the urn and we're spending no time thinking about what they might be. Un misaligned AI could be a black ball. Um, there are other black balls he, he um, describes. I mean, some, so, I mean, there's sort of the kind of the easy nuke version, but there's also the, the ver I mean, cli climate change by dint of bad luck could be a kind of black ball in that just imagine if climate change were much worse than it, it in fact seems likely to be. And we were talking about like a 20 degree rise in temperature over the, co over the course of 50 years. That would be, as far as I understand, synonymous with just the erasure of, of civilization. Uh, but we just may, in fact, be the sorts of primates that can't care about a 20 degree rise in temperature over the course of the next 50 years. So we just can't, we, will, we can't get our act together politically and economically and, uh, such that we can respond to this emergency that is in fact a, an emergency. Uh, so there are certain, certain things that we, even knowing that they're, you know, it's, it's mission critical for us to respond, we can't respond in, in, in a timely way. Um, anyway, this is just to say that there are very few people, it's like Nick Bostrom and 15 other people giving thought to this sort of thing, right? We're, we're, and, and our default condition is, let's just do more experiments. Let's just get more knowledge. Let's just share more data. Let's just, it all has to be transparent. You know, like the, 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 the recipe for, some, for you know, small boxes, let's, let's put it on the internet, right? So, so it's, I'm going to bring it actually full circle because sure. this is... Uh, that's a, that'll be quite an act of geometry <laughs> because we're, we're all over the place. Yeah, well, and also just recency bias, we want to make sure we don't end this podcast with destroying the world. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, Part of what's happening here with both the, the cognitive biases, the group thing we talked about, whether it's, you know, hashtag me too, or pro guns, anti guns, and all this, everything that's happening uh, in this extreme way that's harmful to society, all the way to are we not thinking clever, cleverly enough about these black balls that seem inevitable if they're going to occur? Uh, it's all related to this idea that we have to guide our own thinking more than just relying on what's worked for the past 4,000 years. So for 4,000 years, just increasing technology has worked or seem mm -hmm. to, seems to have worked. For 4,000 years, these cognitive biases have obviously worked because that's how we built society. We evolved to have these biases because we've Darwinistically selected for them. And so now we have to kind of change the way we think a little bit because the stakes are much higher and much more global in ways that we've never encountered as a species before. And so kind of bring it full circle mm -hmm. to your meditation app. Okay. And I would argue that uh, spending time reflecting on what's really happening inside your mind is, is important. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, I don't know that it lands squarely on my meditation app, but I mean, <laughs> meditation is one tool in the, in the toolkit. I, th I think it's you know knowing what I mean. So what's unique about meditation is that it's it's the only act that can allow you to find some intrinsic properties of consciousness that are that you realize that you you are seeking you're seeking a state of being 
by gratifying desire and uh, and trying to become somebody in the world. I mean, trying to realize some plan for yourself, which seems to promise a a, a justification for you to be satisfied with the present moment, right? Like if I only get my life together in these ways, if I could only find someone to marry me, if I could only make some more money, if I could only, you know, if, I, if my only my hair weren't falling out. I mean, there's all, if only, if only, if only, then I'd be able to just relax and be happy, right? And we spend most of our lives, I mean, just an absolutely galling percentage of our lives, never settling down in the present moment because we have reasons why not. We have reasons why this present moment isn't good enough. Now, meditation is a direct response to that largely false problem. I'm not saying there aren't plans we should, I mean, obviously this conversation was just a, a litany of reasons why we should get various things done in the world. Uh, but the question is how, how, do, how, how much well-being can we feel every step along the way. Is it, is it that is it that problem that's solving? Because what if you had anti-anxiety medication that had no side effects? Right. Would you need to meditate then or can you just say, okay, I need another prescription? Well, no, it's because it's more than just being free of anxiety. It's being, uh, I mean, because anxiety isn't the only you know source of, of mental anguish. And, uh, there's just more, it's just a fact that consciousness has uh, an intrinsic property of, of equanimity and well-being that can, that can be found uh, fairly arbitrarily. I mean, like it actually, like, like it, just being concentrated is intrinsically pleasant, right? So you literally, you can concentrate on the breath, which is just an arbitrary object, you can concentrate on your work. You can be a lot like what we, much of what we find satisfying in intellectual engagement or even athletic performances. I mean, when we when we're in, when you're in a so-called flow state, right? Uh, it is the quality of attention, right? Because it, many of these things are just, are when you think about it, they're just they're arbitrary sense phenomenon. You know, it's like what what is it what is it about uh, you know bouncing a rubber ball on a floor and throwing it through a hoop, why, what, why, why can that feel so good when done, uh, when, when there's no distance between you and the act? When you're not busy thinking, oh, I, I hope I make it, did I make like, you know, am I going to make the team? You know, God, I, I, I did this better yesterday. When none of those thoughts are intruding and you're just completely in the flow of, in this case, playing basketball, Right. Why would that be satisfying at all? Well, part of it is this, a generic feature of the mind, which is concentration is deeply rewarding, right? And meditation is a, is a way of just simply using that knowledge directly and changing the way you feel based on just applying your attention. And again, it can be applied uh, at random to anything. You could stare at a water bottle and feel better and better the more concentrated your mind gets. And then you can use that tool. Uh, I mean, it, it, the, the ultimate goal of meditation isn't merely to feel better in the moment like that. It's to actually use your, uh, your powers of observation to discover certain things about the nature of your mind which are important to discover, which is I mean, to take one you know, highly relevant piece is that you know, negative emotion, which rules 
us most of the time, you know, anger and fear and and uh, resentment and anxiety. These are these are emotions that dissipate almost immediately when you actually pay, simply pay attention to them, right? When you become uh, the, the, the word of, of art now that is ubiquitous is mindful. You know, when you become mindful of an emotion like anger, it has a half-life of a few seconds, right? So if you, if you think that, you know, when you get angry and you stay angry for an hour, that is the actual half-life of anger, you're just mistaken about the, you know, depending on what level you want to talk about, you're, you're, you're mistaken about neurophysiology, you're mistaken, you're mistaken about psychology, you're mistaken about what it's like to be you. What's actually happening is you're spending that hour lost in thought about all the reasons why you should be angry, right? You're talking to yourself and you're not aware of it. And um, the structure of our subjectivity is is bizarre and very few people know it. It's bizarre in a way that is engineering our unhappiness so that we spend a lot of time uh, being far less satisfied with our lives and our experience than we could be because we're telling ourselves a story about what just happened and what's going to happen. And we're always just essentially looking over the shoulder of the present moment at what's coming. And it's a... Um, it, it it is the basis of so much so many of the problems we think we're we're, we're going to solve by by acting in the world. So med, so meditation is you can sort of solve many of your emotional problems before anything happens. I mean, like and, and then you can then you can decide what is worth doing from a, a far less uh, a far more dispassionate place. Right? Like you're all like like what is it like to be in relationship when you're already happy? Right? Like you're not getting married in the hopes that it's going to make you happy, you're actually happy, and then you're deciding whether you want to spend the rest of your life with this person, right? That's a very different kind of relationship to have. You're not, it's, it's, it's... I, wish, that, I that, wish I knew that two marriages ago. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, that, but that can be true of anything. It's like you're, you're, you're moving into a new direction in your career based on, it, it can be far less... It can be far more balanced exploration of the of the opportunity space if you understand that there's a there's a a default level of well being that is accessible before anything happens before anything changes. And, and again, it seems like if you're not devoting that hour of mental resources, being angry or anxious or having these negative thoughts, if you're able to kind of focus attention on it, so as you say, the half life gets reduced to seconds. Then you're able to develop these resources, or, or to to reuse these mental resources to either be happier or focus on solving some of these problems that we were talking about, or breaking away from the groupthink and other cognitive biases that are filling your mind with stories that are just stories; they're mm -hmm. not real. And it seems there's like this practical use for it as well. You know, kind of like I would argue you're you you're very authentic person and you've written about authenticity you have a book called lying um i would argue that part of authenticity is kind of breaking free from the societal structures or biases or you know things that aren't as authentic but have built up in society as things to worry about or think about or be angry about and instead focus on what's really happening internally that's how you become authentic mm. that's how you sort of find uh, yourself or or your not self as the whatever it is you believe in. Yeah, I, I think there are, there are just a few concepts here that can change people's thinking in, in a useful way. I mean, one is that 
well-being is a kind of skill, right? It's like it's like, and it's in the absence of that skill that people tend to be as neurotic and un, and unhappy as they are, right? So there, there are things you can learn about your just the, the mechanics of your own suffering that will allow you to to play the video game of your life very differently, and 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 you 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 arrive at a very different outcome, right? I mean, it's like we're we're we are playing. Everyone is playing the best game they've been introduced to on some level. They're, we're playing the best and most interesting game we can find, but there are better games and and meditation is is a way of of playing several games very differently um, but and i mean one analogy that might be helpful is is you know mental versus physical training now we have like we now in the last 100 years have a norm around physical training that is you know perfectly uncontroversial now 100 years ago Nobody was lifting weights. I mean, if you, if you, if you, the the, the strong man in the circus was was lifting weights. But to to be lit, it would it would be a completely valid skeptical challenge a hundred years ago to say like, you mean to tell me you're going to just go and lift heavy objects repetitively for no? I mean, what what, what, it's the most boring thing in the world. You know, are you going to get on a on a, a bicycle that goes nowhere and just pedal for a half hour? It's like this is. It's just this synonymous with stupidity. I mean, what a waste of time, right? But now you are missing a real opportunity. Virtually everyone would acknowledge, and certainly every doctor would acknowledge, not to be doing some deliberate physical training regularly, given all the possible benefits. Well, you know, I, I think we will very soon cross over where into a space where mental training specifically of this sort i mean i think you know mindfulness is really the center of of the bullseye here uh it will be uncontroversial to say that mindfulness is a good skill to learn and and training in it repays the effort and it and it generalizes to well-being in all these other spaces in the same way that physical training does and that it's good to get teach it to kids as early as possible and that there's a continuum of expertise and attainment in this area where there are real, you know, Olympians of of compassion and concentration, and they're different than you and me because they've they have, you know, they may have some inborn talents, but they've actually they've brought these skills to a kind of perfection, right? And that has great it has great consequence for them, but it also is it's a reference point for us. It's like when you're when you go to the gym and try to get in shape, you know, you, you know, you're not. You're not trying to win a gold medal in the Olympics now, or you're not. You're not trying to become a, a professional bodybuilder, but you have a reference point. You know that this this project that you are getting some benefit from could be taken in, a, in, a, in an extreme direction, and um, that cha- that 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 organizes your expectations for your own life. And you can decide rationally or not how much energy you want to put in, in any one of those directions. Um, so, I mean, so it is with, with something like, uh, I'm going to take another form of meditation, something like compassion, right? I mean, like when, when you think of compassion, most people are walking around with whatever com- level of compassion they have by accident and they're giving no thought to whether or not they could become more compassionate than they're tending to be. Or what the consequences of that might be, and they're not—they're th- certainly not thinking about compassion as a skill that's trainable, 
right? You know, but there is an analogous conversation to have. Like if I say to you, well, if, listen, if you can't bench press your own body weight, there's a, you're limited in certain ways that, you know, may not be relevant to you, but like if I put you in another situation, they're going to be hugely relevant, right? Like if, if you want to be a fireman, right? And you want to save people's lives and you can't do a single pull-up, right? You're unqualified, right? So the first thing you got to do is get into the gym and, and, and be able to lift your body weight, you know, 10 times in a row, right? Whatever it is, there's to be some conversation to have about your functioning in the real world in ways that are consequential. There's a similar conversation to have about compassion, right? And like, like what is your moment-to-moment -moment response to the suffering of other people? We have a totally non-existent language around this. I mean, like, it's not even, we're not even at the point where we could aspire to have a sophisticated conversation where there's just no conversation about what it means to, to view the prospects of, of mental health in this kind of open-ended way. I mean, we have a, we don't have a, what we consider sane, right? Like a, in, in, in common conversation and even in psychological science is the default state that most people live, which is they get, they, they're woken up in the morning by some stimulus that they can't recognize. And there's a voice in their head chasing them out of bed and t talking to them every second of the day until they struggle to fall asleep later that night. And there's no alternative, right? You're talking to yourself. I sit down here and I say, oh, 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 yeah, they, they left me some water. Um, and as though there's a person in me who's not me who needs to be told about the water, right? I can see that the water's here, right? But, there, but there's, there's a automaticity where you, we, we talk to ourselves as though there's another person in the head. And 99% of that conversation is completely unnecessary. And it's the, it's the substance of so much of our psychological suffering, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that is... That's a spell that can be broken, and there's a lot of wisdom. I mean, you know, unfortunately, this wisdom is embedded in traditionally in in religion and in Eastern religion in particular. And I, so, I think it needs to be lifted out into a modern secular scientific context. But it is just a fact that there is a lot of traditional wisdom around how non-normative that default state is. And yet, in the West, we haven't really figured out that what we what what we take to be you know, normal human sanity is is so far from optimal, and um, we haven't even even begun to think about you know uh, an alternative to it. And that's uh, so. Yeah, me meditation is a, a very useful tool in in uh, uh, navigating to to a, a, an alternative. And your app you just released in the store and uh, iTunes and Stitch. Yeah, it's called, also, called Waking Up. Yeah, waking Up. Right. Well, Sam Harris, I, I wish the next two hours we could talk about the rise of extreme Islam and hallucinogenic drugs and all sorts of other There are, there are many stuff. topics that we've covered and could cover. <laughs> next time yeah, you're yeah. in town, we, I, I, we, there's so many topics to cover and there's, there's more I'd like to discuss with on meditation even as well because I think it's extremely useful to, to have an app like yours. Uh, but... Anyway, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. We covered so many topics. Uh, also, I encourage people to read your your book, Waking Up, your podcast, Making Sense, 
read Lying, read Free Will, read The End of Faith, read your recent book on Islam. You've, got, you've written about yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm all over the place. But I mean, Watch the, your TED Talks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the unifying strand is that I am concerned about the power of ideas. And I mean, the difference between good ideas and bad ideas is, is the, the, the most important difference I have found in our world. And so I, it, I'm... Uh, and I think, that, I, I think kind of developing your own, having your own vision, having your own ideas is also important. Sure. As opposed to subscribing yeah. to some other strain of ideas. Yeah, I mean, well, where they come from is less important than what, you know, which survive the collision, right? And we just, we want it. What we want, both within our own minds and in culture, is a system that is selecting for better and better, more powerful ideas, right? So that's that's the uh, that's the game we're all playing, whether we think about it that way or not. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on the sure, podcast. Really a pleasure, yeah. Next, again, seriously, next time you're in the city, come on again because there's there, more, there more seriously are about. these other topics no I want doubt. to talk about. But but thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, thank Sam. You.